This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hello, welcome back to the show. Nate, what are we doing? Yeah, okay, so last week, this isn't really like a part two, technically, but I did ask you a question last week, and I thought we could pick up on that. And here's the question. I asked you to answer yes or no, which I know is difficult for you, and it's probably going to be impossible here because we're literally doing this at the beginning of a probably hour-long episode. So it's a yes or no, and then a dot, dot, dot. All right? All right. Yes or no. Is the Bible really sufficient and clear for guiding our ethical decisions and morality? Tim, yes or no? No. Okay. (laughs) Uh, That's what you said last week. You gave the no answer and then just a couple minutes on that. But um, I wanted to get into this a little bit more this week. Uh, Last week, I brought up the the idea of the Bible as a, a tool that it seems like if it's this, you know, divine book or whatever, we should use it for everything. It's this hammer that we just whack everything with, right? But we kind of started talking about ethics and how maybe the Bible and the biblical writers didn't intend for this to be used that way. Anyways, so do you want to expand on your no answer, Tim? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think uh, we'll get into, you added the word clear, and we'll get into that, uh, kind of the idea of clarity and sufficiency and all this doctrinal uh, mumbo jumbo uh, because they do go together and we've got a listener question uh, we're going to throw in here but uh, first just the, the idea of where we started last week was is the bible sufficient for our ethical decision making so for forming our morals for uh, when each generation of humanity approaches new questions new concerns right some of this was coming from the LGBTQ conversations, but let's say like climate change. Uh, we, our generation and our kids' generations are facing uh, climate disaster, climate catastrophe at a, at a scale that most generations of, of human history could not even have imagined, right? They wouldn't have even had a, a category for what now is something we're all asking questions about, right? So... Is the Bible sufficient for telling us Christians how to handle our current state of environmental affairs, right? How to handle uh, the last few decades of climate science uh, data and research, how to handle what appears to be the rather imminent destruction uh, of much of the environmental ecosystem does the bible so you're saying have the, the specific answers? questions that we need to be answering because i could just say no for the specific questions of like does this mean we need to put a carbon tax in place or something like that or do we need to incentivize solar and wind and um no it doesn't have, but it does talk about being good stewards right so like loosely i mean how specific does it talk about, you know, different medical treatments that we have now and, and things like, no, but like it does talk about your body being a temple. And I know probably, probably out of context, but I'm just saying like people could use these things to say like, it does generally talk about some of these topics, even if not specifically. Right. So th- there is just a variety, uh, I think a, a broad spectrum of, forms of this idea that that scripture is sufficient 
right? Uh, to some on the extreme, we'll just call it the extreme right, uh, the Bible is the only source of truth, right? Like literally, you don't need anything else. Like you have uh, the Bible is is good enough for the, the one we've used all the time, like to tell you whether to brush your teeth or not, those kinds of questions. I don't think anybody actually has ever lived by that, right? Um, but I think a lot of people say in word that they believe that. So you don't need any science. You don't need education. You don't need other books. You don't need philosophy. You don't need mathematics. You don't need any of those things. Everything we need for all of life is is contained in the Bible. But most, I don't think most Christians, most evangelical pastors or scholars hold that view. So if you listen to people or you read through stuff, what you'll see is basically uh, – delineations of, okay, well, what is the Bible actually sufficient for? And so actually I even have one right here, uh, by nine marks, uh, it's on their website called the sufficiency of scripture, uh, a professor named Carl Truman. So this is a basically evangelical sort of like church structure organization. And they go through this list. It says, what is scripture sufficient for the first uh, is sufficient to know God, and then they kind of elaborate on that. Second, Scripture is sufficient for Christian practice, and then they sort of categorize this as the level of behavior. Uh, so they say Scripture offers principles which guide believers in their day-to-day lives. But principles, right? Not a rule for every possible situation you might get into, but the, the principles you need. Uh, third, it provides clarity at the level of the church as an institution, uh, so it even mentions, you know, well, Paul talks about offices and office bearers. So we kind of have everything in Paul's letters that we need to know about how to organize the church. And then they say fourth, in terms of public worship, scripture is sufficient for establishing its elements, singing of praise, prayer, the reading and preaching of God's word, the giving of tithes and offerings for the work of the church, baptism and the Lord's supper. So regardless of how you feel about the list of four things, the point is somebody has to make a list right? <laughs> because this supposedly su- sufficient set of texts isn't sufficient to tell us what it is sufficient for. So we have to make websites or write books or whatever, create doctrines, write catechisms that are saying, here's what we think scripture is sufficient for, and here's what we think scripture is not sufficient for, right? So my guess is, reading this list, they're not claiming that the Bible's going to tell us whether or not we should brush our teeth, right? Or they, they wouldn't claim, for instance, in the climate science uh, discussion, they wouldn't claim that the Bible is sufficient to tell us how to, uh, how to approach the politics of environmental disaster. What they are saying is that at the behavioral level, Scripture offers us principles, and those principles can guide us into everything, right? So uh, one of our favorite theologians, John Piper. I'm just kidding. We, we, uh, we're pretty hard on Piper, Desiring God, and what's the other one? Gospel Coalition. There we go. Um, and a lot of their ideas, because some of them are pretty crazy. But I just pulled up uh, a Piper, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. A Piper sermon from 2016, reading the transcript here, talking about the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. He talks about it uh, being meant to kind of safeguard the completeness of the revelation 
Um, it wasn't, it was never designed, he says, to prevent or discourage the use of our minds and our eyes and ears and hands to investigate God's world and discover how it works so that we can put it to best use for the good of mankind. Yeah. If I'm understanding that, that little soundbite rightly, it's basically a sort of, uh, soft adaptation, uh, to allow for what I'm saying, the, the million circumstances that the Bible doesn't give us answers for should we brush our teeth should we pass uh, carbon taxes that sort of stuff so do you agree with piper here then uh i i agree in the sense that that is absolutely necessary like but what i what i interpret that as is a move away from that extreme i mentioned right the bible is absolutely all we need for everything to this place that I think they think is this happy middle ground, which I think is like two degrees from the far right <laughs> in in practical reality and in, in how the Bible is, is meant to actually function, in, in my view, uh, that they're not, Piper's not going nearly far enough or admitting how many problems still exist with the view of sufficiency that, that he holds to. So again, like, just just think about the fact. Why do we need, if the Bible, okay, if, if even the, the Bible is sufficient for, if that's even a plausible, uh, helpful beginning of a sentence, right, that's going to be a paradigm for us uh, as the people of God, why do we need the John Pipers or the Nine Marxes of the world or the Gospel Coalitions or anybody, the Martin Luthers of the world, to explain to us what the Bible is sufficient for. Like, I, I know that this is kind of like poking fun, but if the Bible isn't sufficient, and I love the Bible, so if this is the first time you're listening to Almost Radical, this is not a slam on the Bible. This is a critique of what we've assumed the Bible is meant to be used for. If the Bible isn't sufficient to explain what the Bible is sufficient for, and we need John Piper to do that for us, does it even really make sense to start our doctrinal discussions with the Bible is sufficient, right? So, but then alongside that is a separate question of, of clarity. And I think we want to play a listener question here. And, and I think we should sort of tackle these ideas together, clarity, sufficiency, because they historically uh, came about at the same time as part of the same movement. Uh, they function today uh, as, as part of the same uh, effort. Uh, or sort of doctrinal uh, movement. So let's just zoom out. First first thing I'm going to say is there are a bunch of practical problems with what the Bible is sufficient for. I don't think the Bible is useless, right? Like like you say, there you can find all sorts of cases for um, for land stewardship, treat, care and treatment of the the earth and the land within both Old Testament and New, this that would build this case, this so-called biblical principle, right, of environmental care, uh, earth care, as, as has kind of been a fad in, in Christian circles lately. Um, but, like, part of where I, some of the pushback I'd give there is like, but what if it didn't? Yeah. Right? <laughs> what if... You know, what if we didn't, or what if we, that's is it, not is how it we... Is it the right thing to do because the Bible talks about it? Right. So what if, like, we were in the process of destroying the planet with our fossil fuel consumption, and we didn't see 
a principle of earth care, which for the last many decades in American culture, most Christians have not. They've done the opposite, right? You and I have, I think, mentioned on the show that the ministry where we met at in San Francisco, of all places, just seven years ago, eight years ago, uh, literally intentionally threw recycling into the trash. Because it's all going to burn. Exactly. And then said, because, because you know, the, the to be truly faithful is to see, like, Jesus is coming back before we're going to face any consequences for that anyway. So it was an act of faith to go about not recycling. Well, of course, we now know that our recycling isn't even being recycled anymore anyway, which is just leading to my total despair and cynicism about everything. Uh, but at that time, there was at least a, a significant reason to not throw plastic <laughs> in the trash can, right? And we intentionally did throw plastic in the trash can because of how we were reading the Bible. So that's just another example of like, if the Bible supposedly sufficient and clear, yet millions of us were using the Bible in a way that was destroying the planet, like, is that idea working practically? Well, the one I come back to too is like, okay, so the Bible might kind of speak to earth care as that, you know, kind of trendy term, but we're probably close to, and when I say close, I mean the next 100 to 200 years, embarking on some pretty wild new frontiers of scientific discovery. (laughs) When you think about uh, CRISPR, Cas9, and the genetic modifying of of humans and other organisms and other creatures, Um, when you talk about space travel and what we're probably going to discover and when we have multi, when we're a multi-planetary species living on Mars and potentially uh, moons of Jupiter, and and then in the next few hundred years, or let's say even say five hundred to a thousand years, when we're in potentially other solar systems, and outside of this solar, like there are so many other. And that sounds crazy, but like if it doesn't work, if this book isn't sufficient for all of that, then is it sufficient? Just because it still kind of works for the world we live in right now, if it doesn't work in 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, then is it really sufficient? Those are the questions I ask. I love science. I love space travel and all that kind of stuff. And so like, those are that's where my mind immediately goes is some of the stuff that we're just barely scratching the surface of. If it's not sufficient for that and the ethics that we were going to have to have um, in that world that we would be living in, is it really sufficient? Right. So I think in this conversation, we'll, we can come up with a bunch of practical examples walk through them. It's going to be a hard one, and I want to try hard not to uh, straw man, uh, especially conservative Christians' uh, views on stuff. It's a really easy one because it's like, when I say sufficiency, what do I mean? Is it the same thing other people mean? And, you know, like I said, there's such a variety of what people mean when they talk about these ideas, and then there are all these different caveats and lists, right? So people say, you know, the the Bible is sufficient, but I see all the problems you're talking about. I've thought these thoughts too. So here are all the caveats I give to it, right? right? So I'm not saying the whole idea is totally ludicrous and crazy and only idiots believe it. Like part of that idea, okay, the idea that the that the Bible is sufficient to give us some principles and then we can take those principles and guide our way through lives. I'd say, yeah, like what else, what else could be the... <laughs> the beauty and goodness and the usefulness of a set of sacred texts if it doesn't give us some principles that could guide our lives, right? So like 
One, I, I would actually say, if you're going to say the Bible's clear and sufficient on anything, I would say it's sufficient to put forth, with the New Testament, to put forth an ethic of nonviolence, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> that's actually, sadly, a minority view, uh, so clearly it isn't clear, <laughs> but to put forth an ethic of nonviolence, right? And then there are a thousand different ways and circumstances and specific uh, situations in which I could use that ethic of nonviolence creatively, right, to navigate my way through. Of course, that creative process is also going to be very subjective, right? Um, so that even the principle is not going to function uh, like the rule book, right, uh, that we've wanted it to. Um, but then you can still get into this war of like which principles are clear, right? So again, back to the LGBTQ conversation. To some, the principle is... God hates homosexuality and we have a rule and it's clear. And so we got to stick with that. It's a, it's an abomination and a sin to others. The, the principle is love and acceptance of the other, right? And the uplifting and empowering uh, of the outcast and the marginalized and the willingness to work with the spirit to go against uh, traditional norms uh, of the culture when they've been deemed oppressive. And you can see all of those principles in the New Testament, right? So then you just get into this war of principles and the idea of saying that then those principles that are sufficient to guide us are clear, that's this whole thing to me, just impractical uh, stuff falls apart. So let's take a pause, listen to a question, and then jump back in. Hi, Nate and Tim. My name is Becca and I live in Washington, D.C. My question is about the doctrine of biblical perspicuity or the idea that the Bible is accessible to all people, no matter where they're from, and that it's easily understood. My mom is a professor at an evangelical seminary, and she once told me that she believes this to be true about the Bible. Um, but the more that I learn about scriptures through your podcast and other resources, the more that I feel there is still to learn, and that it's really difficult to understand. There's a lot of cultural context and language and, and history that's necessary to understand the Bible in a way that isn't harmful. I know that you've said scripture is not always appropriate for children or understood correctly in English translations, for example. What would you say to someone who holds this belief? Thanks. Thanks, Becca. I just want to say to you before we jump into the question, we love receiving your questions. We get Lots more than we're able to fit on the show, but we try to use the questions in kind of deciding where we want to take the show, where we want to go, even if we don't play the question on the air. Um, we do use it, and sometimes we'll group together three, four, five questions that we get if they're all kind of similar and do a whole episode on that. So just if you have a question from listening to the show or from talking to your friends or family or just whatever it is, reading the Bible, whatever, we'd love to hear it. You can do that all at almostheretical.com. How great would it be if we got the people that leave the one star, like we are uh, utterly heretical, like trying to lead people to hell, iTunes reviews? What? How great would it be if we got them to record an audio version of the iTunes review so that we could play it on the show? So also, if you hate us, if you're listening to this because the doctrine of biblical perspicuity piqued your theological interests and then you think we're a threat to the gospel, please record us a message of the scathing one-star review as you type it into iTunes, please. Thank you. So Conan O'Brien does this. He reads um, a negative review. Really? Pretty much once once an episode. He'll like read it and they kind of just like laugh. And But his show's not serious, obviously. Um, and that could be, what if we just did an episode like that? Almost like a bonus episode where we 
we go through, we call it like one-star reviews, and we just go through and read the one-star reviews and kind of just respond to them or don't respond to them and just kind of leave it there. We don't have enough for an episode. We have like six or seven, at least. Yeah, we got a few. That's an episode. (laughs) It's a shorty. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Becca, thank you. Uh, so, like I said, I think the idea of the clarity of Scripture, many of you have probably heard the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Oh, yeah, I heard that all the time. <laughs> Just kidding. Is, uh, sounds like perspiration. Yeah. Okay, can we can we for a moment, since we're already making jokes, laugh about the irony of the name, the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture? Because the word is so unclear to us that no one actually knows what the word which just means clarity, what it actually means. Like that's the yeah, like that's the word we chose for clarity is this Right. That should be all we need to say is literally the language we're using to talk about how clear the Bible is, is so unclear because it's coming from 16th century English that we should just give up on the whole thing. But I guess we should. If someone starts their whole thing with the Bible is clear (laughs) or, you know, promiscuous, whatever you just said, if they start with that, I almost just shut off right there because if someone's going to say something and ultimately I disagree with where they land, but they started with like, listen, there's like a lot of different views on this. Um, the Bible, it's kind of hard to understand because here's what the Bible actually is, dot, dot, dot. I I can kind of go with you and be like, okay, we just land in different spots. But when you start with like, the Bible is clear, I just, I just lose, I just lose you right there. It's true. Okay, let's, let's do this. Let's start with a, f- a few minutes talking about the, the history of this whole conversation and set of ideas and, and what these ideas were put forth to do. And then we'll get into the details a little bit, and then we'll sort of zoom back out and talk about kind of how we make sense of all this. So the first thing that, to immediately frame this conversation is these these two twin ideas that the Bible is sufficient for, for whatever, right? For right now, we know there's a multiplicity of things that people believe the Bible's sufficient for. Uh, on the On the short end, it's literally just the Bible is sufficient for what we need to know for salvation, right? And then you kind of figure out what that is. On the long end, it's, you know, maybe the Bible is sufficient for everything you ever need to know. Um, That being paired with the Bible is clear to accomplish the thing that it is sufficient for. These all are Reformation-era ideas, 
they were not doctrines of the church. They were not dogmas of the church. They didn't need to be said, uh, let alone written out and formalized. Um, and how that happened from the Reformation? How that, like, what went down? Yeah, and and how is is really the why? Okay, so uh, history is hard. Knowing how much of the way we retell history is actually accurate uh, is always difficult, especially when it's told by the the victors. Uh, but I think much of the stereotypical picture of the the Reformation is is true enough uh, in that you basically had a corrupt Roman church, right? So the center of power was Rome, the Roman church, and the Pope at the top uh, that was linked with the state, uh, the empire, right? So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like this denomination and this one mega church had all the power. It was like the federal government was running the church, right? Um, or at least partnered with the church and had legal authority, and the the stories of the corruption, right, with selling off indulgences and uh, leveraging the power of forgiveness, all that, like all that was r- real and the way the church was using their religious authority to accumulate wealth for uh, the religious clergy. And much of the Reformation was essentially uh, this multi-generation long battle to to take that power away from the Roman church. And and the way that this got structured and formalized was to claim the the Bible as a higher authority than Rome and the Pope. And essentially to uh, to make an appeal to a higher power to qu- to question those in charge, which is one of the only ways to oftentimes uh undercut an institution and and then to take to strip the power that was invested in in the pope and to put that somewhere else that they believed would be less corrupt less abusive and the place they put that they collectively the reformers the big names you think of people like martin luther calvin but also just a hundred years of development right so where this really gets uh, formalized, catechized, is in the Westminster Confession in 1646, a good 100 years or so after uh, some of the other events that we know about. The The idea that the Bible is is sufficient to guide us is literally a way of saying we don't need the Pope, <laughs> right? Hmm. What, what else is the point? The, the point before was there is nothing sufficient but the Roman Church to tell you what you need to do to get into heaven. Are you going to make that point again that it was being used at the time to say, hey, the one guy at to- on the top, you're not the one that makes all the rules. You know, we're going to put the Bible above you to whereas now we actually have these people up at the top that are saying the Bible is sufficient, but I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about how to interpret it. Are you making that point? Yeah, a little slower. I want to fill out some more of the detail, but that's exactly, you know, if, if you shrink down. 500 years of ideological development, that is the grand irony, okay? So where this started, and it, and it's the irony as I sit here, I would have been on Team Reformer. I, I You get it. 99% certain. You see how they got there, yeah. Totally. I would have totally wanted to wage uh, a war against the abuse of power going on in the Roman church. This massive hierarchy with centralized power with one man at the top, right? Um, I totally would have waged war against that. And I probably, I can see myself even 
believing many of the ideas, hopefully not the like gross anti-Semitism and violence that Luther and others uh, held to, right. uh, but the ideas that that the Bible can handle it, right? We want to take this authority from the Pope. I think the Bible can can have that authority. I think the Bible can handle that. Uh, that's that's the theory that was put forth. Now, I think what we have started to see, <laughs> many generations, many have seen this in the last 500 years, but what's become totally uh, unbearably true, especially with the onslaught of modern science in the last century, is that actually the Bible can't handle it as well as they thought it, it could. Uh, and so, like, for instance, the climate science conversation or the LGBT conversation or uh, even just the simple things of, like, can we brush our teeth? We now have other authorities, right? Not can we brush our teeth? Should we brush our teeth? <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, we have other authorities. We have collections of data that because of the amount of effort and energy and money that's been put into collecting data, observing nature, we now have this whole other realm of authoritative insight that we shorthand call science, right? But I think everyone agrees with that. I mean, even in that Piper quote that I read and probably others that kind of are in Piper's world and his camp, um, you know, the reformed it's evangelical, but it's largely reformed. They would agree with that. They would say we need to observe the world. We need to use data and science that we have. I mean, to an extent, I guess. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if that always trickles down to the people in the pews, though, who then uh, you know love the Ark Museum because it tells them the exact history of what happened. Anyways, right? Um, you know what I'm saying, though. Like, I think they would largely agree with what you said. Totally. There, there are multiple versions. So, in the you know, use the word fundamentalist. People may, you know, differ with that idea, but like, say, like, literally in the independent fundamentalist Baptist church, they call themselves fundamentalists, so we'll use their own language. Uh, that is largely the group that's so right wing. They they want their kids to avoid college. They think talk of politics and philosophy is going to be our downfall. Uh, they are the people making things like the Ark Museum to debate climate science, earth science, geology, biology, all like not just evolution, like everything, right? Um, but then when we're talking about the gospel coalitions and John Piper's of the world, you're right. It's not that like they, but, but why I would just say they have given up the battle <laughs> to fight science. Um, I, I don't think they, they got to an acceptance of science from their view of the Bible uh, my theory, and I could be wrong, is that they let that war go and they realized it was a losing battle, right? And so they've added caveats, like we just said, like the quote you just read, to say, yes, the Bible's sufficient, but that doesn't mean we need to wage war against science. We should be observing, we should be learning from nature, all that. Well, and at the same time, the people, like I said, trickle down into the pews. I know a lot of people that are Piper supporters. He's the guy, he's the man, um, but they still don't, accept science they still you know love things like the ark museum because it pushes back on the you know liberal ideologies out there that aren't trusting god and trusting god's word you know so like it's not trickling down even if that's what piper thinks and maybe the the pastor of your church thinks um that we do need to be listening to all these outside things and the bible is still sufficient even though there's science and data and all this stuff now right for some reason it's not trickling down right yeah and we've talked about how Science and the cries of suffering of gay and trans and bi people, especially 
Christian teenagers, young people, those are the same things, right? It's saying that that we can observe reality, both the way the climate works and the way ideas work in real humans' lives. We can make observations completely apart from the Bible, completely apart from our religious convictions, and learn truth from them. And then the truth that we learn sure as heck better uh, be merged into whatever we think we're reading in the Bible, right? And so just as there's this anti-science, anti-intellectual strain, no matter what people say they believe about the sufficiency of Bible and, and all that, uh, like you're saying, in the pews, there's this anti-intellectual. There's also this anti-empathy towards p- what people are saying is a real-life experience, to the point where Desiring God published an article literally saying that empathy is close to a sin because it will lead us away from what the Bible is telling us we have to believe. Do you remember that? That was like five months ago. I don't know if I remember that, but I do know that like, you know, you can't just trust your heart on everything, right? You need to trust the Bible. I do remember that like whole kind of mindset. Um, yeah. And that feelings and whatever can, you know, they're going to lie to you, essentially. Well, this might not, wow, there might be multiple of these. I just Googled it. This one's on Desiring God. It is titled, The Enticing Sin of Empathy, How Satan Corrupts Through Compassion. Oh, yeah, this is it. <laughs> if you ever find yourself writing that title, you need to just stop. Yep. And ask yourself some really serious questions. Oh, here's a, this is the second of two letters on the demonic distortion of the virtue of compassion, read the first titled Killing Them Softly, colon, Compassion That Warms Satan's Heart. So I'm not going to read this. Obviously, they're probably not saying all compassion is bad. They're talking about compassion that leads you away from the quote unquote truth, which is their interpretation of the scripture. The enticing sin of empathy is the bold title of this art. Like, read it if you want. Do we even need to guess that what's in this guy's mind is LGBTQ affirmation, right? That's the dangerous thing. And the way that people get there, thousands of stories again and again and again, our stories was the basic human and Christian principle. Here we go again. Clear principles sufficient to guide our lives of brotherly sisterly love, (laughs) of empathy, of loving one's neighbor as oneself, of the golden rule of treating other people as you would like to be treated, right? That that's actually a sin because it then led us to a place that crosses one of the rules that is supposedly clear in scripture, right? So if if you're in a world, which I guess we all are in the same world, <laughs> but if you're in a world where you can convince yourself that empathy is a sin, I, I mean, if somebody thinks I'm strawmanning this article here, maybe even if it's just empathy is partly a sin. I'll just go with that, even though it literally says empathy is a sin in the title. If, if you're in a world where you can think that and claim that the Bible gives us clear principles sufficient for guiding our lives, like what, what does that mean? <laughs> right? What yeah. does that mean? Okay. This is a tangent. Let's back up. We got here because of the Reformation. We got here because a bunch of corrupt people used Jesus and, and Christianity to gain power in the world. A story that's happened over and over and over and over again, right? And then once they, they had a claim to that power by this myth that Peter got to Rome and so founded the first church and Peter was the guy in charge. So there's this papal succession that gives individuals who are part of this line of Roman popes this authority, this God-ordained uh, authority to, to rule <laughs> the church and, uh, and the, the great empire that the church is a part of. So... 
you can see it even in Luther's writings. What he was doing is coming up with a creative way, a new, it's, it's worth acknowledging, a new and creative way. That doesn't mean it's bad, right? Right. A new and creative way to, to go to battle with that. Sure. So what you get is a uh, hundred years later, which is now the thing that most Protestant churches are built on top of is these ideas, is, is a way of sticking it to the Pope by saying, we don't need you. We don't need you to interpret the Bible for us. We don't need you to give us your tradition, your rules, your uh, your authoritative doctrines. Mm-hmm. We just need the Bible. It's literally a way of pulling the rug out from under, ideologically, all of the authority of, of the church. And then you have to put that authority somewhere, right? I mean, this is kind of cool, right? Like this, we see this in our day and age. Like you're saying, you probably would have been on Team Reformation because like it's just I just look at the power that Twitter has given to some of the voices of women um, that are being maybe sexually abused um, and just like allowing some of these voices and people of color and marginalized people being able to share their stories and the virality of something like that when it takes off. We start listening and we start uh, it starts actually having um, sway in society and in culture. And and so you kind of look at something like this being similar in a sense um, and like we're all for that type of stuff. Okay. Okay. So, how did we get from that to where we are now? It seems like that was kind of a revolution, and revolutions aren't supposed to last for five hundred years, right? So, like, how did we get from that to to this? Well, again, because this was a an untested theory. Okay. So, you start with the a premise, right? A premise is there's a kind of divine power that exists. Someone, someone, some institution, something is claiming to have God's stamp of leadership approval, right? Or God's authority, right? Speaks on behalf of God. So in the time of the Reformation, they're saying, okay, the institution that's claiming that in the individual is, is the Roman church and its, its leader, the Pope. So the, the theory is let's put that somewhere else, right? And I would say there, there are two, two things that I think they just missed. And again, I've, I've made my case on this show, I'll continue to make it, uh, that one of the basic Christian ethics that we see clearly, if you're reading well in the New Testament, and that the New Testament authors in Jesus got from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is that the most beautiful life-giving way to live that will save us and the world is to rule the world with God by giving away our power to rule over others at every level of life and society to practice self-disempowerment for the sake of empowering others. So there are two things I think the reformers missed, at least in the effect they had. Maybe maybe some of them were thinking this, we just don't know it. That, that hasn't been what history... I said, one (laughs) is I don't think they saw the problem with that power in the first place, right? Or, Or the possibility, or they didn't believe in the possibility that we might be able to live in a world without that kind of power, right? So you're saying taking it away from the man, from the Pope, and giving it to the Bible or the interpreter for the Bible, it's still the same power. It's just relocating it. Right. And that doesn't fix the problem.
at least from this vantage, 500 years later, it appears that what effect the reformers had is they transferred this egregious centralization of power from the Roman church to a book or whatever, <laughs> however we would define the Bible, right, as a, as a canon of texts or a set of texts. Of course, you know, the Roman church still exists and then the Protestant wing of the church still exists. So it's, it's both things are still operating in the world. It just depends on which <laughs> group you align yourself with or which set of right, sure. ideologies you align yourself with. Um, but they, they didn't question the power. At least the, the effect of their actions didn't diminish the power. It just moved it from one to the other, right? So one is I don't think they believed that either that power was was bad in its own right or problematic in its own right, right? Or that it was possible to live a human existence or the Christian community was able to exist without such a power in its life, right? But then the second is I, they just clearly, the reform, neither the Roman church, right, obviously, but also the reformers and then most Protestants since then did not see what I'm saying is a clear Christian ethic. They didn't see it, or at least they didn't want to practice it. But they, they were not trying to democratize and so what I look back and I go, here, here are three basic possibilities. Powers with the Roman church or powers with an individual or a centralized church, right? At the time it was Rome. So you keep that. Powers with the Pope. Or powers with a book. Or powers with the people. And I, I think really a way of framing the question is like, who, who is the Pope? Who or what is the Pope? If the, if the Pope is the... <laughs> is the center of uh, divinely ordained authority. Who, who is the Pope? And they said, it's not actually the Pope, it's the Bible. What I wish they had done, and who knows, maybe it, had they done this, history would have been just as problematic. What I wish they had done is said, it's with all of the people, right? That's what I think Jesus was trying to accomplish. That's actually what I think Paul believed, was that every single Christian had equal standing, equal power, equal honor, so that the the Jesus community was meant to be a fully egalitarian, fully democratized uh, community. They didn't do that. They didn't just give the people to all their fellow poor peasants who were being abused by the Pope. They gave the power to a book. And maybe that's because a full revolution to take power from from one man, right, and the church institution and give it to to all the people wouldn't have worked or wasn't possible or was unimaginable or whatever. But but two things happened. One is that the Reformation and therefore the pro, the foundation of Protestant religion did not give power to the individual Christian. It didn't. It gave power to a book. And, and therefore, like you're just saying, the end road, the, the automatic natural result of that is it gives power to those who have the capacity to yield that book, right? Nowadays, it's the, the preacher, the megachurch pastor, the uh, Christian author, could be the podcast host. It could be uh, like, could be us, could be Politician, any others, right? oftentimes. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, those who have the power to to say that they now are tapping into that divine authority in the Bible, right? Um, what I'm saying is what I think the actual <laughs> New Testament vision, Paul's vision, Jesus' hope, 
which I still find messy and scary, is that every human being empowered with spirit would would form this democratic, and I don't mean that in the term of like a political organization. There's no electoral college here. Just every person has equal power. That's what I mean. <laughs> every person has equal say. Uh, the person uh, sitting in the room uh, who's who's an outsider uh, in the community, an outcast in society, has just as much power as the guy on stage. Every single person, right? Um, that's that's the vision, and. As that thing is, I think, has been scary to everybody throughout history. It's so subjective. Uh, I mean, there have been a lot of stories that have uh, played with the idea of like, we love democracy until we look at our neighbors closely, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then we hate it, right? And it terrifies us and we want to go back to authoritarian dictatorships. Um, I think people are scared, actually scared of, uh, of that sort of egalitarian world. Uh, so they, they tried a theory, they tested it to say, let's see if a book can handle this. And that began this long, slow development over the past 500 years to, to move Protestant Christians from people of God, people of the temple, people of Canaan, all these different ways that throughout Jewish history and then early Christian history, people, the people of, of God have identified themselves, what their fa- their center and foundation has been, right? People of Yahweh, people of Jesus, people built on the prophets and the apostles, as the New Testament uh, speaks of, people of the living spirit of God. Like, we move from that to this idea that we are people of the book, right? Um, an idea that's been thrown around kind of this idiom. And I got to admit, like, I kind of like, I kind of like that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, I understand the appeal to have a text and a really cool set of texts, like really, like I said, the Bible is ingenious. It's brilliant. It's creative. It's all these things to have that be our center instead of my wacky neighbor. Right? There's some like really strong appeal to it, but the theory as to whether or not the authority of the thing that, that is our center that gives us our guidance from God, whether or not the Bible could handle that or was ever, meant to to take on that mantle has been being tested over the past 500 years and what i'm saying is i think over the the past 100 years at first it was modern science that started to pose real problems to that theory and now actually it's been better biblical scholarship <laughs> it's been uh biblical scholars learning more and more about how the bible is working how the bible is functioning and therefore it's it appears what its authors or this uh, redactor mosaic maker was intending uh, to put it there for us, uh, that it's actually better biblical scholarship that is poking more more holes in that idea. So in, in some ways, I think we got here to the, to the ironic position where we don't have a single pope, but we have a gospel coalition that functions in many of the same ways, a softer version that the, the papal institution did, right? It is a gatekeeper that says who's in, who's out, what you have to do to be in, and has supposedly, to those who who give it this, granted this, the authority uh, invested by God. But wh- where do they derive it? They don't derive it because Peter established a, a nonprofit in some part of the United States in you know, some <laughs> period of time. They say it's because they are doing everything biblical. That's what we talked about. That is why biblical is now a code word for the the authoritatively true, correct, uh, 
insider position, right? Yeah. Because now you, you don't say papal. You don't say this is according to the catechism of the Catholic Church. You say this is biblical because that's where our authority is is lying. So all that to say, as a kind of a long uh, summary, which we could get into some of the details if we wanted, I think we should dive back into specifically whether this clarity sufficiency idea is working and, and sort of how to think about it. But I think it's a long summary to say that ironically, as we're realizing the experiment didn't work altogether, I can say I would have, I would have been on that same team back then, but the idea is it both has, has failed, at least in part, and we need to acknowledge that. And we no longer are going to war with the Roman church, right? <laughs> like the, the invention, these ideas were invented to be a part of a revolutionary movement of which we are no longer a part of that revolution. And like you just said, just the, the onslaught of social media in the last decade has done more to democratize and, and disperse power amongst the world then you could argue the Reformation and, and Protestant ideas like the sufficiency of Scripture have done in 500 years. And look at podcasts, too. I mean, we're, we're able to have—I mean, we got invited to speak, speak at a church, what was that, two weeks ago? Um, but outside of that, like, what church is going to let us talk? I mean, not that we're, like, trying to find churches to talk at or churches to be pastors of. Like, we've totally rethought all of that. We want the power to be going to other people. But— you know what I'm saying? Like we are able to have this audience and to share this audience and this platform with other voices that we want to lift up um, because you can now click a button and upload to the world. Uh, and, you know, the ideas that kind of catch on and the ideas that other people are thinking, they get shared and they they rise up, you know. And so right. it's, it's really a crazy time we're living in, not to get off topic too much, but... Uh, yeah, like I just really resonate with what you said. So that we've we've I've tried to point this out with other ideas and their role in hi- history, and this is this is one similarly a, a big one where the way the idea worked when it was first put forth, the the function, the role that it played to actually take power from from the corrupt pope and give it to the people in a sense to the people that anyone could could grab a bible and read it and and go without the roman church it was in that sense that it was trying to democratize it's now at the at the end of its life i think uh outlasted its uh usefulness and is starting to play the or not starting to has been for a while now playing the opposite role it is functioning in an anti-democratic fashion such that because of the way that we talk about the sufficiency and clarity of scripture, most people, in order to actually feel like we know what the Bible says or what God wants for us or what it means to be a Christian, we don't feel like we can do that on our own. We have to go to some sort of other authoritative figure, usually a man, usually a straight man, in our American context, usually in most churches, a white man, and we have to get their interpretation. So, and that's because, I honestly think because we aren't willing to admit, in large part, how difficult the Bible is, right? We keep saying it's, it's easy instead of admitting that it's very difficult. Um, and we, I think we're afraid. It's kind of like the, the 
idea that it's the, the real Trinity in much of Protestant world is the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, is we're afraid to, to accept or admit or grant that no matter how well people can read the Bible, that every individual Christian with the Spirit is meant to have equal say in the way things go. The Father, Son, and the Holy Piper. Um, no, if I, if I always say Piper is the, uh, in the world I came from, was the fourth member of the Trinity. We just, we just did do a, a, a couple shows on the Holy Spirit on Utterly Heretical. You should go check those out. It's our second podcast we do. You can find them at patreon.com slash almost heretical. Okay, but I had, I had another thought, but don't we kind of need that? Don't we kind of need the Tim Mackeys of the world who have spent their life and devoted their life to trying to unpack what the Bible actually means um, and how to actually understand the history and how we got this thing and all that. Don't we actually need those voices? Don't we need to an extent some Tim Ritters out there that can unpack? Cause this show has been really helpful to a lot of people in helping them see some of the wrong ways that they, they were teaching the Bible. They were learning the Bible. Don't we need that though? Yeah. But, but why do we need that? Because the Bible is an exceedingly complicated book, right? It's especially difficult to understand at a practical level for most people. And, and, you know, these caveats have been given, but then you have to include that it's been translated multiple times, different translations. There's been thousands of years of textual copying and reception and errors. Let me stop you though. So what you're saying though, is that we can't understand this thing. We do need to go to a person, not necessarily a white straight male, but we do need to go to someone who has been studying this and knows how to kind of unlock the codes. Um, We do need, we do need that, right? You're just saying it's a different person that we need to go to. But but here's the difference. What I'm saying is, is yes, the Bible's exceedingly complicated. The the reason we think we need to go to the the biblical experts in the world is is not just because we're saying the Bible is complicated and I want to understand it. We go to them because we think that that basically all authority, uh, all the authority of God has been vested in this book. And that's why I need to understand it. What I'm saying is that I think what Paul actually believed is that you could be an illiterate, an ignorant foreigner, like, like all, most all the Gentiles were, to the Hebrew Bible, and that the Spirit of God was going to help you live a life, <laughs> a Christian life, that would be able to empower you to be someone who could rule the world, right? So the the difference is that what is the function, the role that the Bible is playing? Do I need to understand the Bible at some level of experticity in order to feel like I actually am living a life with Jesus, right? That I'm in the right, that I'm in the group, Hmm. That that's what I'm saying. That's what that is the legacy of the the Reformation, is that it made biblical literacy having. That's why we have systematic theologies like Wayne Grudem, and Wayne Grudem systematic theology is is a, a several chains of link down the road from the move that the reformers made. <laughs> okay, so to say you don't need to go to the Pope for for your ins and outs for your rules for life, you go to this book. 
That is why we have people like Wayne Grudem writing systematic theology that are turning the Bible into lists of rules. (laughs) Who's in, who's out, what you have to believe. That is why we have generations of American Christians, and I, I think Christians, other places in the world too, but I'm just admitting our context, but especially in the Protestant culture that truly believe that what it means to be saved is to believe the right set of doctrines, right? That that faith is essentially, we've talked about this, intellectual assent to the right beliefs, right? That is that is a fruit of the move that they made. So it was to, so at the time of the Reformation, salvation meant being in good standing with the Roman institution, right? That's how you were in, <laughs> So then the reformers said, no, you don't need to be in with that institution. You can actually be a part of blowing that whole institution up or going to war with it. But you need to be in some sort of relationship with this text. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And my whole point is that what Paul actually was saying, what Jesus, the legacy Jesus, I believe, was trying to leave is that you need to be in a relationship with my spirit. That's it. Paul and Jesus were putting forth these ideas when there was no Bible. There was no New Testament, right? Sure. <laughs> so uh, they were certainly not making that their linchpin. So what I'm saying is there, yes, we need the experts, but it should be because we want to understand this book for its own sake, not because our entire sense of, of existence, our entire sense of Christian identity is dependent on how well we understand this book. And that is... So the sufficiency move, right? Scripture needed to be sufficient where the Pope used to be sufficient. Clarity then was the move of how we accomplish that sufficiency. If, if the Bible is going to be sufficient to, to, do what, to, to hold the power the Pope used to, then it has to be clear to people. In reality, it simply isn't. So a thousand versions, and I'll, I'll read some, a thousand re-clarifications of what clarity really means have been given. Because generation after generation keeps saying, but it's not clear to me. Yeah. <laughs> what does the gospel of John actually mean? Like, what do I do with this? What, how do I raise my kids? Right. It isn't clear. And so people keep redefining what clarity means, but all of it is, is coming from the same conundrum of it doesn't practically seem to be giving me everything I need for life. It, I'm getting lots out of it whether I'm getting things that are meant to be seen or I'm getting, you know, the Jeremiah 29, 11 weird verse that I put on my refrigerator, I'm finding usefulness in it. And then there are other areas where I'm not, I'm not, it's not doing for me what I, what I want it to be doing for me. I call them eye paint versus the football players put them, they write them in their, the, the eye paint, the <laughs> eye black underneath their eyes. Yeah. The John, the Tebow versus the Tebow versus. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the idea. And again, we, we talked about this with the spirit. The idea is, um, remember, maybe I'll just mention this here. So for me, maybe this resonates with some people out there. Uh, for me, um, you know, I joked that the, the Bible never sufficiently says that it is sufficient for stuff, right? That is a, an idea that we have added to it for how we should approach this thing. But Part of that first Timothy, the famous or second Timothy three sixteen to three seventeen uh, passage, it says the Bible is useful, but the end of it says so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, little one minute Bible study uh, diverge here. Basically, it was that line for me, the idea that equipped for every good work. That kind of sounds like you know. The Bible's the tool for everything. Like you said, it's the pocket knife that accomplishes everything. 
Um, and it wasn't until I realized that, that that phrase, the word for word, every good work, which is, is pretty literal, it's the Greek for every, the Greek for good, the Greek for work, uh, is used by Paul in two other places. Uh, the exact same three words in a row. Uh, one is in 2 Corinthians 9.8, the other is in Colossians 1.10. And neither of those are in a reference to the Bible. So, and of course, 2 Timothy is just referencing the Hebrew Bible, not actually the New Testament. Uh, but the one in 2 Corinthians is, is talking about actually through the act of self-sacrificial generosity, if the Corinthians are willing to give their money away to the poor, that through that act, God will be able to, to bless them so that they'll have everything they need to abound in every good work. And then in the Colossians, as Colossians 1.10 it's essentially a reference to the Spirit and the overall work of God to, has no reference to Scripture or a set of texts, but basically the, the life with the Spirit with God will bear the fruit of every good, or fruit in every good work. Uh, and it's basically a, a specific reference to the wisdom that the Spirit gives. So it looks actually like this line is not saying, hey, the Bible is your multi-tool for all of life. Apparently, every good work was sort of a shorthand that Paul would use, either like for good things or for stuff or for the the Christian tasks that you will be facing. Or... Isn't it crazy how one or two words can change everything? Totally. So if you're if you're specifically interested in the Second Timothy verse, actually, this may seem random. Go back and listen to our gender series where we talk about the context of the letters to Timothy and what was happening in Ephesus and the the likelihood that there was a disagreement about creation stories, creation myths happening amongst different people in Ephesus. That is likely why Paul references that the the Hebrew Bible would be a good thing to use to Timothy, right? Timothy's task was to literally go debate, likely, false creation myths that had to do with gender, sexuality, getting pregnant. And it's the one place in all of Paul's writing he recommends using the Bible as a tool. The one place, right? Everywhere else, <laughs> it, is, it is the Spirit of God, life in Christ. And there are more recommendations that literally giving away your money is a tool for every good work, right? For all the things you need to be doing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. More places where Paul says that <laughs> than than using the Bible, right? So again, this is just another place like, okay, I got hung up on that one for years, did a little bit of Bible homework and going, oh, okay, that's not actually what Paul's saying. We have falsely placed this mantle that the Bible's useful for everything uh, onto that. Um, so that leaves us with this clarity idea, back to Becca's question, right? Like, is, is the Bible clear? Is it helpful for us to talk about the Bible that way? One piece I haven't mentioned that I think is the most important. When you asked Nate, like, how did we get here? And, and I've sort of painted this story that I, th- I think, hopefully, is, is historically accurate, as best as we can tell, of what the Reformers did. The other key piece, we've hashed on this and I probably always will, is that what the Reformers combined with their, uh, their sort of revolution, the thing they added into the mix, the, the special ingredient, was a remarkably low view of humans. I've dubbed this a a low anthropology, right? They, more than any Christians throughout history, Christian thought leaders, believed that we humans were capable of very little, 
So there's a, there's an irony mixed in, for instance, where you get some of, of the most clear language in Luther's writings about the, the clarity of scripture are actually in his writing called The Bondage of the Will, which is essentially about how little uh, humans uh, had capacity to do, how, how depraved we were, and Calvin later expanded it much more. So you get a quote like this, but if many things still remain obtruse to many, this does not arise from obscurity in the scriptures, but from our own blindness or want of understanding, who do not go the way to see the all-perfect clearness of the truth." And then another piece of quote, let therefore wretched men cease to impute with blasphemous perverseness the darkness and obscurity of their own heart to the all clear scriptures of God. So like the thing is actually really clear. And if we're not seeing it clearly, that's because we just want something different. And so we're reading on our own selfish, sinful desires. And so that's, we're making the Bible unclear. Right. If if you want to point to one ideological parentage to most of John Piper's ministry, I would say it's it's this. It's this idea that the Bible is perfectly clear, but you are all so awful you're not going to be able to understand it, right? It's not saying that no humans can. It's saying that if you can't, it's your own sinful full problem. And what is, the, what is the next step, right? And I'm not even saying Piper is like a power addicted, like I think Mark Driscoll is, Right, I think there are plenty of people like that out there. I've known some personally, but I'm not even making that claim about Piper. But that's the result is you can't understand the thing. Even Martin Luther was admitting, well, it doesn't feel clear to most people. And then he's just saying, well, that's because you're a perverse sinner and you can't see it, right? Uh, and therefore you have to go to, to people like the Martin Luthers of the world. I, I think it's important that you brought that up because I've heard some people say that, you know, you're so you're saying that the local church pastor is just power hungry wanting and I, we don't we're not saying that we're not judging motives of each individual pastor I think there's a lot of pastors out there of small local congregations that are just trying to quote unquote preach the word preach the truth every week faithfully for years and years and years but what we're saying is do you need to go to that one person for the truth right and, and that is, I think, practically how, how this is playing out for many people. And, and there's another a great irony with Luther, and, and that is that Luther came to his role, at least as, again, as we understand it, and his, his willingness to make this major move, right, which has been summed up as the sola scriptura move, right, this, this collection of div- divergence of power from Rome to the Bible. He came to this because he had this set of uh, what he called epiphanies or experienced as these light bulb moments, specifically reading the book of Romans and translating the book of Romans, where he thought he finally unlocked the key, literally found, discovered the key to understanding the biblical text. And that that key was essentially that the entire message of the Old Testament is that people were rotten sinners and could not do anything to save themselves and needed an, an outside, decent, person who wasn't a rotten sinner to come in and save us, to get us into heaven. And that the problem is works and the solution is is a perfect, uh, obedient uh, person who then we don't do any works. We just put our faith in that person. So the solution is faith in Christ against works. The, the, the irony is that Luther came to this conclusion 
because he was misreading and mistranslating passages of Romans. <laughs> so, which scholars now all widely agree upon, not all, widely agree upon. Verses in Romans like 117, 39, 512, which is the one that uh, Augustine famously essentially created the doctrine of original sin based on a mistranslation of Romans 512. So, to me, the, the great irony. One of them is, you know, is it faithfulness in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ? And scholars will admit now that there's simply no grammatical way of knowing whether <laughs> pistis Christu is the technical Greek, what that actually means. But, but Martin Luther believed he unlocked the key to the entire Bible. So whatever clarity means, one of the proponents of saying the Bible is clear and accessible got there because of an epiphany he had of completely misunderstanding the text. Like any part of the reason he misunderstood it is he was working from a Latin translation that was just a bad translation, but that's part of how the Bible works in real life. Well, now there's whole churches, denominations, seminaries based on that exact truth. They preach that every single week in different ways that it's not about your works. You can't earn your way into heaven as if that's the big debate, right? It's about what Jesus did for you, trust in him. He covers over your, like that, that is the gospel. Uh, and that's what it's, what's preached every week when they say the gospel coalition, what they're defending is that. And those churches all across America, when they're preaching the quote unquote gospel, they're preaching that because as you say, a misinterpretation of a probably poorly translated version of whatever this thing that we call the Bible is. Oh, okay, we got to end this thing, Tim. Can uh, Do you like pointing out ironies as much as I do? I like a good irony. Can you make it short? Yeah, it's two paragraphs. Okay. Okay, let me read something, a quote, and, and I want to point out one last irony uh, to, to close, close our time here today. Uh, so the Westminster Confession, 1640s, is essentially when these ideas from Luther, Calvin, the Reformers, all that, like that's when they were set in stone and we've never essentially Protestant church has never moved beyond them. The first section, if you read parts, uh, the sixth and seventh paragraphs of the Westminster confession, it says, and I just want you to see if you can smell the irony. Uh, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation Faith in life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the in inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature, i.e. outside the Bible, which we talked about, and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. And then section seven, paragraph seven, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened to some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Okay, oh, I'm falling asleep. What does that mean and 
What's the irony? I just want to point out the two great ironies. One is if you've been convinced by what's now called the new perspective on Paul, which is just a, a growing number of scholars and ordinary folks like you and I reading the Bible who are starting to see that Luther and the, the foundations of Protestant theology have had essential facts about what salvation is to be entirely wrong for the last 500 years. <laughs> That's the idea of the new perspective, right? What it means to be in the kingdom of God, what the gospel is, this whole framework that it's about how to not go to hell and go to heaven by believing the right set of things, putting our belief in the right places and not doing our own works. That paradigm, the new perspective is pushing back on. The idea that even at the, at, you know, to not straw man things, if we're just going to say the Bible is clear for salvation, now people like me and many others don't even believe that what Luther and or those that decades later were writing the Westminster Confession, what they thought salvation was is what we think salvation is, right? So there's a big one. So even if you just reduce it to salvation, the idea that like, okay, we can all agree on that. No, we can't. <laughs> like... What's become very clear in recent uh, decades is that even supposedly something as simple and clear as what it means to be saved as a Christian is totally questionable. We can't agree there. That's that's one piece. But the second piece is in the sixth, sixth paragraph of the Westminster Confession. It says <laughs> that nothing at any time is to be added to Scripture. This is the sort of sola scriptura basis. Nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Okay, so the Bible is sufficient and clear. And even though Paul seems to think that all of our life is to be about the Spirit helping us by giving us new insight into the world, we're going to say that no new additions of people hearing from the Spirit are to be added, right? So that's kind of a straight road to the John MacArthur cessationist you know, Holy, Holy Bible Trinity. But the other piece is just, this is the grandest irony to me. These doctrines, the reason we started this conversation by pointing out they are only 500 years old, they are new, they were inventions that came at a certain moment in history to, to perform a certain task. There is an idea we've mentioned before. There's no like author's note or preface or how-to guide for the Bible, right? If if there were a lot of our uh, conversations and, and questions would have been answered a long time ago, um, but there isn't one. But we all often act like there is, right? The, the truth is we just have a book and we have to determine ourselves what, to, what the heck to do with it. It doesn't tell us what to do with it. We act as though we, we do. There's no Bible passage that tells us the Bible is sufficient. There's no Bible verse that you can post on your fridge or write on your eye makeup if you're a football player that says that the Bible is perspicuous, okay? Those are our decisions about how the Bible ought to work in the world or how we ought to convince ourselves that the Bible does work in the world. And then you're going to say, on top of the Bible, you cannot ever add some man-made tradition, to me, the grand irony is these doctrines are man-made traditions. Fine. That's fine. Let's just acknowledge, okay, are they good? Are they bad? Do they work? Do they not work? Are they helpful now? Were they helpful 500 years ago? Like I said, I would have been on team perspicuity in the 1500s. 
I'm not on team perspicuity now because I, I no longer find these ideas to be helpful. But the idea of saying that that the Bible is sufficient and then you can't add anything to it, right, is is literally shooting yourself in the foot because saying the Bible is sufficient is in its own right adding something to the text. So that's a longer elaboration of the answer no, uh, which I gave you. And hopefully, Becca, that's helpful. All right. That was great uh, and really helpful. And I think it's it's always helpful for me to kind of process through some of the Reformed tradition just because that is the tradition that I came from and taught for years. Uh, and so it's it's still hard sometimes. I don't know if anyone else resonates with this, but it's still hard sometimes to separate it all out and like, wait, what is actually wrong here? It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. Uh, it feels off. But just to talk through that is really helpful. Okay, this was fun. We'll be back next time with more. And if you want to support the show and get some additional content, you can do that at almostheretical.com and send in your questions, your thoughts, pushbacks, anything like that. And we'd love to address them on the show. All right. Thanks for spending some time with us. Peace.